What is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. A couple cool things. So our friend Robin Warder over at The Trail Went Cold actually just covered my aunt Carol Wolsencroft's case. And he does such amazing research, and he has a really great podcast. So everybody go listen to his new episode of The Trail Went Cold on Carol Wolsencroft. It just came out today. Also, for those of you who don't know about our other podcast, The Dark Parts, we just released a new episode on The Elevator Game, which is this really creepy, creepy uh, story and game that's been floating around the internet for some years now. Um, It's very, very scary. So if you're interested in urban legends and scary stories, go check out that episode. Yeah, that episode honestly made me tear up in fear at a point. And so if you guys are interested in that, go check it out. Um, The elevator game is essentially you uh, press a sequence of buttons in an elevator and it's supposed to take you to another realm. And we go into a lot of crazy stories about it. It's really insane. So check out The Dark Parts. Really excited to dive into today's episode. It's another more recent case, and I've kind of been liking doing more recent cases since they're obviously very relevant. So super excited to talk about this one today and see what you guys think. Yeah, so uh, let's not waste any more time. Without further ado, guys, this is episode 105 of Going West. So let's get into it. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes that you're going to find interesting. Jordan is super charismatic and well-voiced, so I loved listening to his recent episode with Susan Casey called Unraveling Mysteries in the Ocean's Darkest Depths. It was so creepy and interesting, and he goes across every category with other episodes like Romance Twister, My Mister Once Dated My Sister, or his monthly Skeptical Sunday episodes about controversial topics from crystal healing to cannabis to Ouija boards. There is something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In 2017, a retired firefighter went missing from his Texas home during a seemingly normal day. After searching his vast property, a strange trail of blood was discovered in his workshop, and it seemed to stop abruptly. While checking his cell phone records, some very unnerving information came forward. 
that made this case even more bizarre. And it led police to look at his inner circle even more closely. This is the story of Michael Chambers. Michael Glenn Chambers was born on November 27, 1946, in Italy, Texas, which is a very small town of less than 2,000 people, just about a 45-minute drive south of Dallas, to parents Fanny Bell Meadows and Alton Clayton Chambers. Those are some names. I know, I love those names. He also had a brother named Marshall. At the age of 25 in 1972, Michael achieved his dream by becoming a firefighter with the Dallas Fire Department. Michael absolutely loved his job because he had a real passion for helping people, and he eventually became what's called a driver engineer, also known as a DE. And in this role, he was responsible for driving the fire truck as well as maintaining and operating the fire pump, as well as the aerial ladder, which is that big technical ladder, which looks more like a staircase that's attached to the truck. So it's a very important role that's also very technical, and it pays about over $50,000 a year. Meanwhile, Michael was also raising two daughters with his wife, Vicky, and the two girls' names were Susie and Sherry. But he and his wife, Vicky, divorced just a few years into their marriage, and in 1980, when Michael was 33 years old, He married a 23-year-old woman named Rebecca Erickson, who goes by Becca. With Becca, Michael went on to have more children, but they chose the adoption route. And with that, they adopted two sons. First was John, and then four years later, they adopted Justin. Michael was known to be an incredibly loving husband who treated his wife like a queen. And as the years passed on, Michael eventually got grandkids and then great-grandkids. He was the grandfather and great-grandfather who seemed to do it all, from cooking a holiday meal to entertaining all the young kids at the same time. He was known to be the epitome of a good grandfather, and they all called him Papa. In 2008, after a very successful and fulfilling career, and when Michael was nearing his 62nd birthday, he retired from the Dallas Fire Department and started the next chapter of his life. At this point, they were living in Quinlan, Texas, which is a very rural and small town of just about 1,500 people that's around a 45-minute drive east of Dallas. They lived in a quaint bungalow on a 10-acre property just a couple miles from Lake Tawakoni, so you could definitely say that they had a pretty peaceful life. Everything seemed perfect for them, and the kids and family thought that they had an ideal marriage because they joked around a lot and really loved each other. And Michael had a great retirement because he had a lot of hobbies and also loved spending time with his family. And by 2017, he had nine grandchildren and six great-grandkids, so big family. He was the guy that you could call for just about anything, and he would drop what he was doing to come help you out with a big smile on his face. That kind of sounds like my dad. It really does, yeah. And since he was such a fixer, his biggest hobby was restoring classic cars, also kind of like your dad. He... He likes to fix stuff. So he was a member of the Texas Most Wanted Car Club. 
he would buy cars and completely fix them from the ground up. And he also often had his son-in-law, David, who is his daughter Susie's husband, help him out, and they just had a blast together all the time. And Michael actually had a multi-car workshop on his property, so he spent a lot of time in there doing what he loved most. As a faithful man, he was once the deacon of their local church and became very well-known and well-loved in their small community. Before his retirement, he joined a gospel group called the Joint Heirs Quartet, because he absolutely loved to sing, and they would perform at various nursing homes and churches. And Michael was with this group for over 13 years up until he disappeared. And we did post a video of him singing in this group on our socials. Everything would change on Friday, March 10th, 2017. Becca worked as a home health nurse and would see patients for homebound care. So that morning, which was a nice, partially cloudy day and about 60 degrees Fahrenheit, Michael said goodbye to his wife and she went off to work. According to his wife, Becca, Michael was going to be home most of the day to work on a car and cut some firewood on their property. At 8 a.m., Michael and Becca spoke briefly on the phone and Becca requested that he pick her up some mascara. So after 11 a.m., Michael was seen on the security cameras in their local Walmart in their town of Quinlan, buying them makeup and a couple other items and then returning to his truck in the parking lot. He was alone and acting completely normal and his truck did not appear to be followed by anyone. At the Chambers' home, the Walmart receipt was in the bathroom trash and the Walmart items were in the bedroom and the bathroom. So we can confirm that he came home and put the new items away. A few hours later at 3 p.m., the Chambers' neighbor returned home and spent the afternoon outside working in the yard. They can see the Chambers' house from their property and didn't notice anything strange up until that point, like from 3 o'clock on. Hours later, at or around 6.30 p.m., Becca returned home from work. About 45 minutes earlier at 5.50 p.m., she had texted Michael that she was leaving work and coming home, but he didn't answer. Usually, Michael greets Becca outside when she comes home and he helps her bring her stuff into the house, but that night, he didn't. His truck was in the driveway and the house was dark. Becca went up to their house and the door was locked, so she unlocked it and went inside. Michael wasn't anywhere in the house, so Becca called his cell phone, which went straight to voicemail. At this point, Becca called around to other family members and asked if anyone had heard from Michael or knew where he was, but no one did. With that, Becca went to her neighbors and asked them to help her look for Michael. Becca and the neighbors went up the property, which was pretty heavily wooded, and looked to see if Michael was chopping firewood, but they didn't find him. So that's when they went to Michael's workshop where he would work on cars, and the door was locked. Becca grabbed her keys and unlocked it, hoping to find Michael inside working on a car, but the fact that it would be locked with him inside really didn't make any sense. When Becca and her neighbors went inside, they noticed his wallet his Dallas Fire Department ball cap that he always wore, and his keys were all sitting on the counter, meaning he had been there. As Becca walked around the garage and alongside one of Michael's classic cars, she pointed out drops of blood on the concrete floor. 
One of the neighbors that was with her was actually a retired police chief in a neighboring town. So when he saw the blood, he immediately called 911 at around 6.50 p.m. So let me describe the blood to you. It's essentially a trail of perfectly round dots of blood that lead to a pool of blood. But when I say pool of blood, what I really mean is a cluster of perfectly round drops of blood, about 100 drops in one circular area. I highly recommend that you guys look at the photos to get a better idea, which we posted on our social media accounts, because it's, it's very unusual to me looking at it. Because oftentimes when blood is drawn and it hits the floor, it's in a splatter pattern. But these are perfectly circular dots. They almost look like stickers. And just to be clear, there are little tiny little dots around the bigger dots that would be the, the spatter and the splatter from each drop of blood. But the actual drops themselves are circular. So like almost like splashing, like the drop hit and then it kind of splashed out these little tiny drops. Exactly. But the actual drops themselves are perfectly circular. They're not like, you should just go look. And the blood was bright red, so it was fresh. It had just recently happened. So when police arrived to the scene and saw this, they were very confused. More on the blood in a bit. There was also a bloodied dowel rod, which is basically a cylindrical wooden stick, standing up against the nearby wall, as if to insinuate that Michael, or someone else, had been hit with the wooden rod. Police first start looking to see if this had been a robbery situation since there was kind of known to be in this area some of the patrons used methamphetamine. Michael's wallet didn't have any cash in it, but that wasn't super unusual. And it was also missing his Texas driver's license. His iPhone was also nowhere to be found. But considering all of his cars were still there along with his keys and a bunch of expensive tools, this didn't seem like it would be a robbery gone wrong. Also, police checked the inside of his truck that was parked out front, and there was $1,000 in cash sitting in the center console. So that kind of robbery theory is probably out the window then. About the blood, too, the direction in which the blood drops led was not going towards or near the sink that was in the shop. Also, none of the stacks of rags in the workshop were disturbed, meaning that if Michael had gotten hurt while working, he didn't attempt to clean himself up. But considering the wooden dowel had blood on it, we can pretty much just surmise that this was not blood from any kind of working accident. Let's talk more for a moment about the scene again. Regarding the house being locked, this would be normal if Michael was working in the shop. But again, he always knew when to expect Becca and would greet her in the driveway. And regarding the workshop being locked, this is only normal when he wasn't inside. It's not normal for him to lock up while he's inside the workshop. Yeah, and in fact, usually when he's working, he has the garage door open so that it's it's just fully open. It's not like he's shut away in there. Right, because a lot of times when you're working on stuff in a garage or a workshop, you want to have a door open so that any fumes that may be gathered inside don't you know harm you in any way. Right. Since his keys were inside the workshop, it's probably no surprise that you can lock the workshop door from inside by just turning the lock and then closing the door behind you. So you don't need a key to do this, meaning someone else definitely could have locked the door. But this could point to Michael having been working in the workshop during the early afternoon, which would explain why the house was dark with all the lights off and why his wallet and keys were in the workshop 
and then something happened to him while he was working. When police checked the scene for prints, on the door handles, cars, counters, etc., they only found Michael's prints. While evidence was being collected, all the other officers were sent to search the rest of the property. Since it was a whole 10 acres, Becca and the neighbors had not been able to search it all themselves. The Hunt County Sheriff's Department even had a helicopter searching the area, and they were using a FLIR unit, which is like a thermal detection, to see if they could find Michael that way. But none of this led to any clues or answers. Since the Chambers' home was pretty close to Lake Tawakonee, as Heath mentioned earlier, they shifted their search efforts to that area and brought along the helicopter with the thermal detection unit. But still, he was nowhere to be found. Because the neighbor came home at 3 p.m. and worked out in the yard all day and didn't see or hear anything at all, law enforcement believed that whatever happened to Michael happened between noon, the time he would have likely returned from Walmart, and before 3 p.m. Police started questioning family to see if Michael had any known enemies at all. But it appeared that Michael was just the guy that everyone loved. I mean, he was a firefighter, so, you know, he helped out in the community and he was always friendly, so there didn't appear to be anyone who would want to hurt him. Even the sheriff, who is Sheriff Randy Meeks, knew Michael very well and could confirm that everyone adored him. The following day is when police discovered the Walmart surveillance footage, and again, everything appeared to be completely normal. Police weren't sure if he had gone to any other businesses after this, so they checked with other local cameras, but they didn't find anything. But they knew that Michael had returned home after this outing because of the fact that the Walmart items were in the house and his wallet and keys were in the workshop. So police gathered multiple bloodhounds to search the chamber's property again and try to pick up on Michael's scent, and the dogs kept leading them to the edge of the property that led to a pond area. Michael's family started wondering if maybe someone had stopped by while they saw Michael working on his cars and something happened that way, because apparently Michael always worked with his garage door open, just like Daphne said, and cars would drive by and sometimes stop to talk shop with Michael. And him being an incredibly friendly guy, he would chat them up. Once again, the thermal detection unit was brought to the area of this pond, but no sign of anyone was found. So although his scent went that way, he wasn't there. At this point, everyone in the greater Dallas area is looking for 70-year-old Michael Chambers, a 6'3", 225-pound man with blue eyes and balding gray hair. The sheriff called Michael's cell phone, which again appeared to be either off or dead because it went to voicemail. And he had also called the previous evening and it went to voicemail then too, which Michael's granddaughter says is strange because he always kept his iPhone charged and in his pocket. So Sheriff Meeks checked to see where and when it last pinged. And that was at 5.50 p.m. when Becca texted him saying that she was on her way home. His phone pinged near Lake Tawakonee, which was an area they had searched already. But they decided to have divers go out and search the waters to see if they could find any clues that way. So the day after he disappeared, two diving teams searched the lake and nothing was found. They weren't able to do a full dive search of the lake because it wasn't safe, but they had come to the conclusion that Michael was not in that lake. Five days later, on March 16, 2017, 
the Chambers family started a Facebook page to gather tips and they announced that they had a $25,000 reward that they would give to anyone that had any information leading to Michael's whereabouts. But soon enough, the family started looking at someone very close to home. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volix XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I know all of you guys love listening to thrilling stories, so why not check out some thriller audiobooks on Audible? 
That is all I've been doing lately when I'm cooking, cleaning, or driving. Because Audible includes an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. And they have thousands of podcasts from popular favorites like ours that you guys can listen to. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And on top of that, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. With Audible, the time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. And I am very much gripped in the audiobook that I'm listening to now on Audible of The Drowning Woman. It is so good. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. People close to Michael started wondering if there was any way that his youngest adopted son, Justin, who was 31 at the time, had anything to do with what happened to him. Justin had been in and out of foster care as a baby and was adopted at the age of four by Michael and Becca. But he didn't have the best relationship with Michael and some of the other members of the family. And Justin would frequently call Michael and try to guilt trip him into giving him money when he was low on cash. And Michael would always do it. But a few months before he disappeared, Michael officially cut Justin off. And after this... Justin would call Michael and make threatening comments out of anger. But after police looked into this, they wondered if that's all it was, Justin just speaking out of anger. Since there was no evidence of where Michael was and police couldn't get anything out of Justin, they had to just put this idea to rest for the time being. Justin had said in the interview that he would never hurt his dad, and police didn't find any evidence that he ever had or that he would hurt his dad. But what they did discover regarding the crime scene was that the blood on the wooden dowel as well as on the floor in the workshop did indeed belong to Michael. But once a blood spatter expert viewed the scene, they were dumbfounded at how perfect the blood drops were. Like I said earlier, there were perfect circles, not messy spatters. And there was no sign of a struggle whatsoever. There was just a random trail of dots leading to a more concentrated area of dots, and then nothing. The blood just stopped. And there was no blood anywhere outside either. So the blood spatter expert immediately believed that the scene was staged. And not only did they believe this because of the way the blood drops looked, but the color also indicated something. The blood was bright red, which possibly indicated that the blood included an anticoagulant. Anticoagulant, or a blood thinner, is a chemical substance used when people get their blood drawn so the blood doesn't clot. So this told the blood spatter expert that someone may have drawn Michael's blood, or he drew it himself, and stored it in a vial, and then placed the drops in that way, which would also cause them to look so perfect, to stage a crime. And again, make sure to go look at the photos because it's really an interesting sight. Our Instagram is at Going West Podcast, Twitter at Going West Pod, and our Facebook is Going West True Crime. Police thought that this was really strange because if Michael was met with foul play, 
why would someone want to stage a crime scene? If anything, killers try to cover up the crime scene. But still, Michael staging his crime scene didn't make sense to police. Later, a private investigator became involved and he actually has a different theory about the blood drops. He states that he and his team found evidence that supports Michael being carried and the blood dripping that way. And by carried, I mean one person holding his legs and one person holding him underneath of his arms. This would cause a zigzag walking pattern, which could apparently cause the blood to drop into those perfect circles like that. About the blood being bright red, it doesn't have to mean that there's presence of anticoagulant. This color can also indicate that it's arterial blood, whereas venous blood is dark red in color. Arterial blood is oxygenated blood in the circulatory system that comes from a pulmonary vein, and the PI and his team believe that the blood could have come from his ear or out of his mouth if he had in fact been hit in the head. The weird thing though is that there's no blood spatter at all, yet the wooden dowel had blood on it. So if he was hit in the head, and it was hard enough to get blood on the dowel, you would assume that blood would spatter. But again, there wasn't any. Yeah, that's really weird to me, because you would assume if he was hit in the head, either there would be blood spray on the counters or on the walls or on the floor, and the only spatter comes from those drops of blood. So to me, that's just really, really weird. Like, I don't know how it would get on the dowel and not everywhere else, because blood spatter is like very specific yeah and the only thing that i could possibly think in my mind is that he was hit in the head outside and then someone carried him or two people carried his body to a car maybe put him in the trunk of the car and the blood drops happened that way and then they just put the wooden dowel up against the wall but obviously i have no idea if that's the case well the only thing is that there wasn't any blood found outside at all So it's like, it's so weird that it's just in this one area. And it's frustrating because there obviously is an explanation to how this blood got there in that specific way. We just don't know. Yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense. If there wasn't any blood found outside, then it probably wouldn't be possible. I mean, you would assume that the blood drops would be dripping all the way up to the shop door and then leading inside. Exactly. But like you'll see in the photo, it's just this random strip of blood and no blood anywhere else. So again, regarding Michael staging his disappearance, he loved his family and everyone believed him to be like just this happy-go-lucky guy who was so proud of his accomplishments, so they can't see him doing this. But one thing that wasn't so perfect was he and Becca's marriage. Police were tipped off regarding 60-year-old Becca Chambers having numerous affairs during her marriage to Michael. On top of this, Becca suspended Michael's phone service just 10 days after he disappeared. And she took Justin's phone off the plan completely because his phone was linked to their account since they paid his phone bill. Again, this was only 10 days after he went missing, just a week and a half. So a very short amount of time later, when police are still gathering all the evidence and really just starting to investigate this whole thing. And this raised a lot of red flags when she suspended Michael's service because the way everyone else thought of it was, if his service is suspended, we won't know if he turns his phone back on or if someone else does and it pings somewhere else. Like a phone is a big piece of evidence in any modern case. 
and suspending it takes all of those future possibilities away. Yeah, honestly, that seems extremely suspicious. I would never do that. If if one of my family members was missing and there was some chance that we could ping their cell phone or there's some chance that we could find that cell phone and maybe there's evidence on it that shows how and when and why they went missing, you're going to leave that phone on. But Becca explained to police that she didn't want to keep paying for Michael's phone since she wasn't going to be getting his retirement money if he was gone. And she didn't want to pay for his phone with her own money from nursing because she was worried about her finances. But one month later, Becca did something else that seemed a bit questionable. Five weeks after Michael went missing, Becca obtained a temporary death certificate for Michael so she could sell his truck. Apparently, she was now responsible for his truck payments, which she didn't want to make from her own money, but since the truck was in Michael's name, she had to get a temporary death certificate so she could rightfully sell it. And this really upset Michael's children as well as his grown grandkids because they were only five weeks into the investigation and very much hoping that Michael was out there somewhere alive. And here Becca is wanting to get a death certificate for him. Meanwhile, there's no proof that he's dead. So this was very suspicious to investigators. On one hand, they understood if she needed to do this for financial purposes, but on another, it seemed a bit odd and a little bit cold. In May, so about two months after Michael went missing, a polygraph expert as well as the FBI came into the picture to help on the investigation. They started first by giving Justin a polygraph test, which he apparently very willingly agreed to. They gave him two separate tests, and they say that he passed both of them. So with that, they weren't looking into him any further. A few weeks later, they brought Becca in for a polygraph test. And this is when they dove a little deeper into her extramarital affairs, but she was very hesitant while discussing them. Like, she did not want to talk about it. She only talked about one, though, stating it was the only affair she had and that it ended almost one year prior, so nearly five months before Michael disappeared. During the polygraph test, she mentioned that she believed that Michael knew about the affair, but they never openly discussed it. Michael's family was extremely shocked and hurt to learn about Becca's infidelity, because everyone thought that their relationship was perfect and that they were kind of like a leading example, especially since Michael really doted on Becca. According to the sheriff, Becca passed her polygraph test. They did also bring in the man that Becca was seeing the previous year, and police found that he had an airtight alibi the day Michael went missing. So that's when they really shut the door on Becca being involved. But a little bit later on, a private investigator was able to discover that Becca had more affairs than she was leading on. It wasn't just that one. There were multiple. And on top of that, Phone records show that she spoke with one of her lovers the day that Michael disappeared, twice in the morning-ish and then once at around 2 p.m., as well as the very next morning at 5.30 a.m. and continuing on well after Michael's disappearance. And when P.I. Philip Klein asked this lover guy about this, he denied it. But when Klein showed him proof, he fessed up and said yes, they did speak that day but he didn't have anything to do with Michael's disappearance. So this is looking really suspicious though, because he had just lied to the PI and his team, 
and they spoke the morning after Michael's disappearance as well as the day he went missing. Also, there's no evidence of where Becca was after 2 p.m. on the day of the disappearance because that's when she left work. That's the same time she had a call with her boyfriend, yet she texted Michael at 5.50 p.m. saying she was leaving work and coming home. Also, Becca's phone went dead right after she got off the phone with her boyfriend and there wasn't activity on it again until an hour and a half later. This means that Becca's whereabouts from around 2 p.m. to just after 6 p.m. when she arrived home are totally unknown to us, and she won't talk to the P.I. about it at all. And does this mean she had anything to do with Michael's disappearance? Not necessarily. I mean, she definitely could have just met up with her boyfriend and spent the afternoon with him and kind of just was trying to lie about it, saying she left work later because she wanted to spend the afternoon with her boyfriend. But it's awfully strange timing, all of it. The fact that she got the death certificate to sell Michael's truck and the fact that she turned off service to his cell phone is really sketchy. And then on top of that, she's had like multiple affairs with all these different boyfriends. Some really big red flags are being raised for me right now. Especially the fact that her phone went dark. So it's not just, you know, if they had pinged her phone at the boyfriend's house, that would be different because it would be like, okay, well, maybe she really was just there hanging out with him. But the fact that her phone went dark for an hour and a half and then she was caught lying, like, it just proves that she can lie and it proves that she's shady. Yeah, it's just really shady shit going on here. Also regarding Becca saying that the workshop was locked, the neighbor who was with her, the retired police chief, said that the door didn't appear to be locked and it almost looked like Becca pretended to unlock it with her key. Why she would do this, we don't know, but it's worth mentioning. I thought that was kind of weird. Becca also refused to speak to P.I. Philip Klein about anything when he came to her a few months later, which struck him as extremely odd because this is the wife of a missing man and she won't even sit with him to go over anything. Three months after Michael went missing, Michael's daughter Susie received a tip on a Facebook page that she had created to help find her dad and the man said that he knew where Michael was. He then proceeded to call Susie and explain to her that Becca and another man murdered Michael and put his body on a property, an address in which he also gave Susie. Considering there was a $25,000 reward, police believe this man, who was a convicted felon, was just lying to get the reward. But they did do a search of said property and didn't find any evidence. But to me, I think this is weird because Becca was not a public person of interest. She, nobody was, there wasn't discussion about her having done something to him. So the fact that we're here speculating if she's involved or not, and then this guy says Becca and another man murdered Michael, like, where did he get that? He, he couldn't have just made that up. I mean, could he? I mean, it's possible if he had gotten information or details about the case somehow. But yeah, I mean, it still seems pretty suspicious and uh, definitely makes me question things. That same summer, Justin went over to Becca and Michael's home and got into an argument with Becca. And this caused Becca to call the police and asked for a protective order against him. When the police asked what the argument was about, she said it was about her cutting off his phone bill. Mind you, this is months after the fact, so police thought that this was unlikely. Justin then later told his sister Susie 
that their argument wasn't about the phone at all, but that he had gone over there to ask her if she was involved in whatever happened to his dad, because he had heard about the tip that came in to Susie, and he threatened Becca, but just with words. And remember, Becca is his adoptive mom, so for her to file a protective order against him is odd, but she did it. And the police thought this would was odd too. They're like, okay, that's a little extreme. Like, this is literally your son who's asking you about his father, your husband's disappearance, and you're going to file a protective order against him? Like, it was just weird. He didn't do anything. Like, he didn't hurt her or... You know what I mean? Like, it was just weird. Yeah, I totally agree. And even Susie thought this was strange because she didn't think there was any reason why Becca should be afraid of him because he wasn't, like, known to be a violent guy. It was just weird. So then two days later in July, four months after Michael went missing... The family is informed of something that happened weeks prior. Becca officially declared Michael dead on May 26, 2017, just over two months after he went missing. And this is not a usual or typical thing that happens with families who have... It's usually like years later. Yeah, it's usually after like 10 or 20 years of of searching and all this pain. But two months later, come on, this is weird. And the family was speechless, especially because declaring Michael dead gave Becca monthly payments from his $750,000 pension. The only way those payments would stop coming in would be if he turned up alive within three years. But again, local police just believed that she was doing whatever was necessary so that she could stay afloat. But come on, I mean, $750,000 a pension, she knows that she's getting paid now. I just, ugh, gotta just... It's To me, it's all just too weird. It's like too many things that I just don't feel good about. Yeah, it's just rubbing me the wrong way. So since, by the way, really quick, since we're speculating about Becca being involved, I also think it's interesting that she recruited her neighbors to help her look for him before she even checked the workshop on her own because Michael was always working on cars. So why not check the workshop first and then go check the property before asking your neighbors for help and making it a big deal? Because no one actually expects their person to be missing. You're just like, okay, well, they're somewhere. So why didn't you check the garage first and walk around the property before recruiting the neighbors and, and you know, ruining their night by, you know, not ruining their night, but taking them away from whatever they're doing to help you when it, it's just a little weird to me. Yeah, it seemed like she was a little quick to get help looking for Michael, which is sometimes a sign that this was pre-planned. And also the fact that she may have known that her neighbor was a police chief from another town. Well, they were very, very close. So she definitely did. Right. So that fact, the fact that she, you know, kind of recruited him to help her search also might make it look like she's being legit because, oh, I went to my my neighbor who's a police chief and he helped me look. So and if he saw it, didn't see anything weird. Right, but this is right after she got home. So it's like you're already grabbing the police chief. I mean, yes, it was getting dark. The property is huge. But to me, I'm like, just check the workshop first. And even more so, the fact that she peeked around the garage and found the blood and pointed it out. You know, I don't know. It just seems suspicious. And maybe like you wanted other people to be there with you when you discovered the blood to kind of give you like an alibi. Like we found this together. Right. We came upon the crime scene together. Right. That's exactly what I'm saying. Right. Because that does happen. We have seen that happen before. 
And I just point this out because the private investigator and the police pointed it out as potentially suspicious. Like, everyone thought this was weird. And regarding her not talking to the private investigator, it's also weird to me. Because in his words, P.I. Philip Klein says, If you're so worried about your husband and what happened to him, why wouldn't you want to talk to us? And also, apparently, Becca's best friend also will not talk to police or the P.I. as if they're, like, protecting her, so just weird. Yeah, like maybe she had told her friend, like, hey, if this P.I. comes around, don't say anything. With how busy our schedules are, Heath and I are constantly ordering food and groceries from DoorDash. It just saves us a ton of time when we can't run to the store for ingredients or don't feel like cooking and want delicious takeout instead. But delivery fees can definitely add up, and this is why we have Dash Pass by DoorDash. Dash Pass is an exclusive membership from DoorDash that gets you unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, as well as member-only deals and discounts. Which is why Dash Pass is the most affordable way to get anything and everything you need delivered right to your door, and fast for just $9.99 a month. Which means DoorDash quickly pays for itself in just two orders on average. So whether you order every day or just a couple of times a month, you'll save with Dash Pass. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for Dash Pass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Police seem to believe that Michael staged his own abduction and potential murder based on the fact that they believe the crime scene was staged and that there was no struggle. And then either Michael went out and started a new life or committed suicide. Michael's son-in-law, David, mentioned something to police that could give this theory weight, and it was a comment that Michael made months prior while he and David were watching an investigative show on TV. Apparently, Michael said, a person could easily disappear and make it look like an accident, and no one would ever find them, and it would be easy to do. But David even says that when he said it, it didn't even give David pause, it was just a comment. And he does not believe that this is what Michael did. And a lot of the family doesn't either. Some wonder, and police also wonder, and have this as a big theory for them, but majority just don't see him doing this. If he was staging his own kidnapping so that he could go away and start a new life, why would he bring his cell phone? Knowing that it could be pinged 
And we know it was turned off or dead by 6 p.m. and that it never pinged again. So why bring it? And why bring just your driver's license and leave $1,000 cash in your car? So he has no money, no form of transportation, a cell phone he can't use, and a driver's license? It's also just hard for me to believe this anyway because of, you know, how much of a family man he was. He's really going to have a normal day hitting up Walmart to get mascara for his wife, go home and stage his own murder or abduction and then leave forever, and leave his four children, nine grandchildren, and six great-grandkids to wonder forever? Like, that's some cynical shit, and he wasn't a cynical man. In October 2017, the Hunt County Police brought in a cell phone expert to analyze Michael's phone pings and use a new technology to help track his route that day. Earlier that day, Michael had used the Lake Tawakani Bridge to go into town and stopped at a pull-off where he could kind of go look at the lake and just take in the scenery. And we also posted photos of that area. Because of his phone pings, the cell phone expert determined he was there for about 10 minutes. At about 2.30 p.m., Michael went back to that location. But the weird thing is that it took him three hours to get there this time. And with this information, the expert determined that Michael had to have been traveling between 2 to 4.5 miles per hour. And once he got to this location, his phone went dead. And just as a reminder, Becca's phone went dark just after 2 p.m. after she spoke with her boyfriend on the phone... And I also will point out that the PI had another phone expert analyze the same data, and they came to about the same speed conclusion. So he was traveling between two to four point miles per hour, or at least his phone was. The sheriff's office got it into their heads that Michael had to have been traveling by bike. But looking this up, the average person rides a bike between 10 and 14 miles per hour, so that doesn't make any sense. A leisurely bike ride is typically 5.5 miles per hour. Meanwhile, a walk is typically 3 to 4 miles per hour, which seems to fit a little bit better. But they went to Michael's house and determined that a bike was missing, and therefore Michael must have ridden this bike to the bridge where he committed suicide. But when the private investigator looked into this, he didn't find any proof that a bike was missing, nor that a bike even existed. There was one bike that was hung up in the garage on a bike rack, and it was completely unusable and it was broken. There was no second bike rack, and no one in the family even knew if a second bike existed. Not to mention, the neighbors said that they never saw Michael ride a bike, ever. And P.I. Philip Klein also discovered that 70-year-old Michael had bad knees because of his terrible arthritis, so biking wasn't something that he would do at all. Although some research suggests that biking is actually good for the knees. But he would have had to ride nearly 20 miles or around 30 kilometers from his house to get to the bridge. And bloody at that. Yeah, like if he had gotten injured in his garage and then he gets on a bike and rides 20 miles when he's a 7-year-old dude who never rides a bike and he has bad knees. Like, this was their legit theory and... 
the PI really breaks it down and is like, this doesn't make any sense. How is this your theory? But also, why the fuck would he get on a bike bleeding and ride to a fucking bridge instead of a hospital? Well, right. And I think the the sheriff and the other police at the Hunt County Sheriff's Office believe that he staged the crime scene so he wasn't bloody to them. He staged the crime scene so he had his own blood in a vial, placed it in these very particular weird way, locked everything up, took his license and his phone, got on a bike that we don't know existed, and rode 20 miles and then jumped off a bridge that is only nine feet away from the water that they searched where no bike nor person was found. Like, it just doesn't add up to me. Yeah, and going along with the theory that he wanted to maybe start a new life, you're not going to ride a bike to a bridge. Like, what are you going to do from there? Where are you going to go from there? Exactly. It just doesn't make sense. And kind of going into that more, between Equisearch, diver teams, sonar, and more, there was no evidence that a bike was dumped into the water. So the PI, really, just like me, doesn't understand why the sheriff's office is screaming suicide to the rooftops when there's no evidence of a second bike existing, nor a bike even being found in the water that they claim it must have been dumped in, let alone the fact that Michael's body wasn't found in that lake. And after this phone expert came into the picture, they did another search of that area, and nothing. The drop-off from the bridge to the water, like I said, was just nine feet, so this was not enough to be a lethal fall whatsoever and the PI tested it. So this committed suicide in the lake theory that police are holding on to really just doesn't seem to hold any weight. And nearly one year after Michael disappeared in February of 2018, they searched the entire property that he used to live on that was across the bridge, thinking that maybe he biked there to commit suicide. Like they went there and they were like, he's gonna be here, but they didn't find him. So. It seems like the private investigator and the sheriff disagree on a lot, but I'm really glad to have both investigations and both perspectives. Yeah, it would just be kind of nice if they were able to work better together to come to the same conclusion. P.I. Philip Klein really thinks that this was a homicide, and he doesn't think it was a hit because he knows how well-loved Michael was. He thinks that, and, and he's not even really saying that it's Becca. He's saying, it could be Becca because she won't talk to me, so how can I rule her out? But he is does not think this is a suicide at all because there's no signs leading to suicide and staging to start a new life. So to him, he just he respects the investigation that the sheriff's department is doing, but he doesn't agree with their thoughts. Also, P.I. Philip Klein points out that the Bloodhounds trail stopped at the driveway which is a big indicator that Michael either got into a vehicle or was put into a vehicle. If he had walked down the street or ridden a bike, the scent trail would have gone on. So personally, I believe he was met with foul play. And I can't explain why he was traveling at such a low speed because I really don't think he rode a bike and I also don't think he would have walked 20 freaking miles. So how could he have gone so slow and where was he going? If he were in a car... It would never travel this slow. And I saw online that someone speculated he was maybe in a garbage truck. But I still don't think that it would have traveled that slow. So I just can't explain this part. The only way that I can explain it is if he wasn't with his phone. Like, we don't know he was attached to the phone as it went that way. So maybe he wasn't. Because nobody reported seeing 
a man that looked like him walking or biking on the bridge that day. And going back to Justin, it's really hard for me to really speculate on Justin since we don't know anything about his character, but I really doubt that he would kill his dad over him not helping him with his bills. Because Michael didn't have a ton of money either, so it's not like he was a millionaire holding out on his son who was in trouble. And I really don't think that polygraphs are all too much to go off of, but he did pass twice. But I just can't really get over the fact that multiple family members wanted police to look into Justin because those are the people that do know his character. And if they think he could be capable of doing something to Michael, at least at first, I think that that holds some weight. And that could have just been a formality because he had some drug and alcohol issues, and I don't think he was involved in this, and actually about a year after Becca put a protective order against him, in 2018, he fell off some scaffolding while working and got very badly injured, and he was in intensive care. And I couldn't find any information if he came out okay, but hopefully he did. Yeah, I agree. I just don't think there's enough there for Justin, and the fact that he went to Becca and got really upset and into an argument with her thinking that she could have done something to his dad. I just, I don't, I don't think he was behind this. But I do really think that Becca is suspicious here. And I don't know why she won't talk to police anymore or the PI. And she wouldn't even speak to them within a year of this incident. It's as if she just wanted it to go away. And she lied about having an affair at all and then lied about the number of affairs. Maybe so it wouldn't put suspicions on her because she's innocent and didn't want to look guilty, but I don't know. I just don't trust her. If you're innocent, talk. And the PI Philip Klein also discovered that Michael had a conversation with one of Becca's boyfriends a year before he went missing and asked them to stop seeing each other. So he knew, and she kept seeing him and the others anyway. And this may be a stretch, but Becca worked in healthcare, so... She could have taken his blood and staged the crime scene. But again, the PI points out that he really doesn't think that it was staged because it looks like two or more people picked him up and then maybe put him in a sheet or a tarp and then loaded him into a car, which is why the blood stopped abruptly. But we really just don't know. Yeah, in my opinion, I see Becca as the main suspect as well. And it's mainly because of all the affairs that she was having. And you know, the the whole shutting off his cell phone thing and um, getting the death certificate for him. I just, I have to keep going back to those things because they really just, they really just rub me the wrong way and make me feel weird about that. I know. I, I totally agree. It's just, it's just too strange. Today, Michael would be 74 years old. When he went missing, he was 6'3", 225 pounds with blue eyes and balding gray hair. He had a small scar on his upper lip from an old auto accident, as well as a surgical scar on his right knee and also both of his shoulders. Michael wasn't known to have any health or medical issues whatsoever, except for his arthritis, and it's very important to his family and his community that either he's found or their questions are answered. If you know anything about what happened to Michael Chambers please call the Hunt County Sheriff's Department at 903-457-2929. And you can also contact the PI at 409-729-8798 or email him at philipkline, with a K, at gt.twcbc.com. 
Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening, and next week we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. I got some of the information for this episode from an interview, actually, with P.I. Philip Klein, and the interview is done by Brain Scratch, and on YouTube you can find it under Lord and Arts. He's this really awesome guy who did this great interview with the P.I., and I linked it below with the rest of the case sources if anybody wants to watch it. It's really interesting to hear from the actual PI on this case, and he has a lot to say. It's an hour-long video, so we did include all the highlights here, but if anyone's interested in learning more, go check it out. And we'd also love to know what you think of this case and what you think happened. So let us know what you think on Instagram or Twitter, but we also have a Facebook discussion group called Going West Discussion Group on Facebook. Click to join, we'll accept you, and let's get talking. Also, if you guys are interested in supporting the show, make sure that you either head over to our website and get yourself some Going West merch. You can just click on the shop tab, head over to goingwestpod.com, or you can join our Patreon. You get bonus episodes every month, depending on what tier you choose. There's a $5 tier, a $10 tier. Um, And also, if you're a part of the $10 tier, you get 25% off of all merch in our store. So here's to the people who joined our Patreon community this week. Yes, thank you so much to Felicia, Arlene, Jana or Jana, I'm not sure, but thank you so much. Cheryl, Lee, Nina, Casey, and Trinity. Big thanks going out to Caitlin, Katie, Sayoban, I think that's how you say it, Sayoban, Uh, Laura, Marie, Tara, Jess, and Ariel. Thank you so much to Natasha, Tamara, or Tamara, Jamie, Louise Rickshaw, Julie, Melanie, and Katie. Big thanks going out to Natalie, Brianna, Catherine, David, Jenna, Allison, and Anna. And last but not least, thank you so much to Kelly, Tanya, Rachel, Lee or Leah, sorry for all the auras, everybody, but thank you. Thank you, CJ. Thank you, Venlala on Dilemma. Jessica, thank you, Carly, Patrick, Marissa, Tracy, and Allison. We love you guys so much. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon community. You really help keep the show going, and we love you. Yeah, we so appreciate every one of you. So if you want to join Patreon, the link is in the description below, and we'd love to have you. That's patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, cheerio, and don't be a stranger. Cheerio.